Good morning. What a privilege indeed is ours to be gathered together as the people of God to extend our hands as it were to offer worship and glory to the Lord which he is due. And then to open our hearts together to study his word, to receive his teaching and instruction that our hearts and our faith might be built up, encouraged, and that we might be edified in the Lord. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here, to be a part of Focal Point. Grateful to Wayne and to David and to the elders here for the invitation. The Jones family holds a very special and dear place in my heart, the hearts of my family. And so it's so good to be back with them, to be able to spend some time together this week and to worship our Lord together today. I invite your attention to Mark chapter 9. As we consider together our study, O for a faith. We've just sung together the words of a song penned by William Bathurst in 1981. O for a faith that will not shrink. It's a song that's short, composed of just four short stanzas. There is no refrain, there is no chorus for us to repeat as we sing those stanzas Together, Yet it is a song of deep truth and profound truths about faith drawn from the scriptures. It's a song that describes faith as trust and dependence. Faith is that trust and dependence that will lean upon its God. Faith is that trust and dependence that will not murmur or complain. Faith is that trust and dependence that shines more bright and clear as it grows, as it develops, and as it matures. The song describes faith in its essential nature. The song says faith is a must for us to have an eternal home where there is hallowed bliss. The song there is echoing the statement of the Hebrews writer in his declaration in Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, verse 1. And then he says in verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When the song stresses the essential nature of faith, it is echoing the declaration of Jesus, John 8 and verse 24. Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you that you will die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so as we're singing this song together, we're singing about the essential nature of our faith. As we're singing this song together, the song describes the foundational nature of our faith. Faith is the foundation of our hope and of our confidence. The song describes faith that when in darkness there is no danger, when in darkness it feels no doubt. Faith. The foundational stone on which our hope and our confidence firmly rests. And the song's echoing the truth the Hebrews writer declared in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The ESV translates the term substance with the term assurance. It's a word that refers to a setting under, to a foundation or a support. And so faith is the foundation and support of our hope and our confidence. The song describes the enduring nature of faith. The words of the song remind us that in life we'll be pressed by every foe. 
In life, we'll find ourselves beneath the chastening rod. In life, there will be times when the tempest rage without. And what is it that's going to allow us to endure the storm? What's going to allow us to endure the pressing foe and the chastening rod? What's going to allow us to emerge victorious? Faith. Faith is the victory. Faith is what will allow us to go through the storms and the difficulties of life and to emerge on the other side victorious. Here the song is echoing the truth declared by the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Faith is indeed the victory. John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, what you will find in the world is the trouble of temptation. All that is in the world, John says, is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Jesus says what you will find in the world is the trouble of tribulation, John 16, 33. He says, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. What's going to allow us to endure the temptation of life? What's going to allow us to endure the tribulation of the world? Faith. Our trust and our dependence and our confidence in God. It's interesting in Mark chapter 4 verse 17, in Mark's account as he's giving Jesus, giving the parable of the sower and giving its explanation, Jesus is describing there those who receive the seed into rocky, stony ground. And he said, they have no root in themselves, and so they endure but for a time. Without the root of faith, our endurance is only temporary. It's only for a moment. But with that deep root of faith, we can have the pressing foe and the raging tempest, and we can endure those and emerge on the other side in victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes And so this song is truly a wonderful song for us to sing together as the people of God because it encapsulates so many profound truths about faith. It's essential to pleasing our God. It's the foundational element to our hope and our confidence and it is what will allow us to endure and to emerge victorious. But the song doesn't just describe faith. As you sing the words of that song, Oh, for a faith that will not shrink, it is a song that desires faith. The sentiment of the song is a longing and a plea and a desire to have a foundational, essential, enduring faith, a faith that will allow us to emerge victorious through the storms and difficulties of life. The first and last verse, the ones we likely sing most often, are a cry to the Lord, a desire for that kind of faith. The opening verse gives this sentiment in a plea. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink. It is expressing a desire, a longing for that type of faith that will grow, that will endure. And when it is pressed upon, it will not shrink and it will not fail. The closing verse of the song records the same sentiment in different words. In the words of a prayer, Lord, give us such a faith as this. It recognizes that the Lord and the Lord alone is the source of faith. That God and His Word is the only place where we can have that faith 
given to us. And this plea, O for a faith, Lord, give us such a faith as this. Similar, isn't it, to Luke 17, to the plea and the prayer of the apostles? Jesus has taught in verses 1 through 4 that they must be a people who are willing to extend forgiveness. And in response, the apostles said to the Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. In essence, they said, Lord, give us such a faith as this. Give us a faith that will grow. Give us a faith that will not shrink beneath the troubles and the difficulties of life. Should not that sentiment be our sentiment when it comes to faith? Should not that prayer be our prayer when it comes to faith? Should not we be a people who are pleading with the Lord to give us such a faith as this that will endure the storms of life? So I invite your attention to Mark chapter 9. So we look together at a scene of faith to find the faith for which you and I should be longing. As we look at Mark chapter 9, we're not looking at one of the usual customary passages that we would study in relationship to faith. We might study passages like Romans 4. And Romans 4 is without a doubt a great scene of faith in the New Testament as it focuses our attention on the faith of Abraham. And the the chapter describes Abraham as having a faith that was not weak in faith, rather a faith that was being strengthened, a faith that trusted and believed that the one who had promised was able to perform what he had promised, Romans 4, 19 to 21. It was a chapter, Romans 4, that will instruct us to walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, Romans 4 and verse 12. It's indeed a wonderful chapter about faith. It's not where we'll go today. Hebrews chapter 11 is without a doubt one of the great scenes of faith in the New Testament as it presents the hall of faith. It too points us to the faith of Abraham, but it points us to the faith of other great men of God like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Moses, and others. Like Romans 4, it's a chapter worthy of our study and worthy of our consideration when we study about faith. But I want to look at a different passage this morning about faith. And it's found in Mark's account of the gospel in Mark chapter 9 where we look into the face of a stranger to hear his statement and his declaration about faith. Verse 24, this stranger says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And I believe that's a statement of faith that you and I will be able to relate to. A statement of faith that will resonate with us as we strive to live a life of faith, as we strive to walk by faith. And so let's look at this chapter together and what we can glean from this statement of this stranger about the faith for which you and I should long. And so in Mark chapter 9, we're introduced to a father who comes to Jesus. There are numerous fathers, I'm sure, who encountered Jesus, who interacted with him, but here is a father who will make in his encounter a statement of faith from which you and I can learn. This father is a stranger to us. I like how Mark introduces him there in verse 17. He simply describes him as one of the crowd, allowing him to remain in obscurity as a stranger. He will come to Jesus and he'll make this great statement, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But what's happening in this chapter that brings this stranger, this one of the crowd, this father to encounter Jesus? 
The day before, Jesus carried with him three of his apostles, Peter, James, and John. And they went off into a high mountain apart, and Jesus was there transfigured before them. There appeared with Jesus on the mountain Moses and Elijah. And Luke says they spoke with Jesus, verse 31 of Luke 9, about his decease that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. And then a cloud overshadowed that mountain, overshadowed Jesus and those three apostles, and the voice of God from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Jesus then instructed those three apostles to keep secret the things that they had seen until after his resurrection from the dead. And then they began their descent down the mountain to return to the other apostles. In the meantime, while Jesus and Peter and James and John are away for this moment at the Mount of Transfiguration, the apostles have been left the other nine. And here comes this stranger, this father, who likely was coming looking for Jesus... He's likely heard of the fame of Jesus that has spread because of his ability to heal diseases, to cast out demons. And so he comes, and instead of finding Jesus, he finds nine of his apostles. And Mark will record down in verse 18 that he spoke to these disciples, to these apostles. Now Luke in his account in Luke chapter 9 uses a greater and more descriptive terminology here. Luke says that instead of just speaking to his disciples, this father said, I implored them. It's a very strong term. He says, I begged them. I petitioned them. Mark, or Matthew records in Matthew 17 that when this father encounters Jesus, he's kneeling down to him. And so that's very likely how he approached the apostles. He comes kneeling down to the apostles and he says, I'm begging you, I'm petitioning you, I'm pleading with you. I have this difficulty and this problem and I need The apostles listen to his difficulty, to his struggle. They attempted to help, but Mark 9 and verse 18 says they could not. They failed to help this father and the difficulty he was having with his son. And it would be that failure that would lead to him encountering Jesus. The apostles had on other occasions been successful at healing and casting out demons and helping people. In fact, when you go back to Mark 3 and Jesus calls together his disciples and he chooses from them 12 whom he would appoint to be his apostles, his intention was that they would be with him, that he would send them out to preach and that he would give them power over the unclean spirits. In Mark chapter 6, he calls these 12 together and he sends them out in groups of two that they would go and preach the gospel and he gave them power to heal and to cast out the unclean spirits, Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. And so they went out, Mark 6, 12 and 13, and they preached that men should repent, and they healed many that were sick, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. And so they've been successful on other occasions, but on this occasion, here's this father pleading with them for his son, and they attempt and they fail. And so a great multitude begins to encircle these apostles and this father. And from that multitude come the scribes, verses 14 and 16, disputing with them. Verse 16, Jesus says, what are you discussing with them? And so here's this group 
circling these apostles and there is this discussion, this disputing that's happening. Two different terms are used there in the New King James. It's the same term in the original in both verses. It means to question or to inquire, to interrogate. And so here's this group who have encircled the apostles and the scribes are interrogating and investigating the apostles and this father and the failure that has happened. And so as Jesus comes on the scene, he comes to this discussion and investigation. Now, these scribes aren't asking questions to learn about what's happening. They're not asking questions to learn about the apostles and about Jesus. They're probably using this occasion and the failure of the apostles to attack Jesus and his followers and his disciples. And so as Jesus comes onto the scene, he comes to this tumultuous scene as he's left the Mount of Transfiguration. And here is this group of individuals interrogating his apostles. And as he approaches, Mark says, this father, this stranger, this one of the crowd steps out to speak to Jesus. Matthew records in his account in Matthew 17 and verse 14 that he came kneeling down. Luke records in Luke chapter 9 that he cried out. Mark will record here in verse 24 that this father is kneeling there, crying out to Jesus with tears flowing from his eyes. And so as you look into the face of this stranger, we're looking into the face of a heartbroken father, pained, grieved over the difficulty facing him and his son. In fact, Luke records in his account in Luke 9... This is this father's only son. And he is presenting to Jesus the trouble and the difficulty he had presented to his apostles. His only son is demon-possessed. He has an unclean spirit. He describes this unclean spirit to Jesus, verse 18, verse 17, rather, as a mute spirit. This Demon had taken away this boy's ability to speak coherently. This father had not heard his son say things like, Dad, Daddy, or I love you. Instead, all he had heard was the spirit crying out through his son in loud screams and shrieks and croaks and moans. Not that he couldn't make sound, but that he couldn't put together coherent words. And so there were occasions when that spirit would just cry out through him. Matthew describes him in Matthew 17 and verse 15, this unclean spirit as a miserable spirit. The father said that his son suffered severely because of this spirit. The ESV translates it with the word terribly. This spirit had been in this boy since childhood, and as the months went by, the severity of the problem just became worse and worse and worse. Matthew says this father and this son suffered often because of this miserable spirit, frequently. Mark describes him here, the father does in Mark's account, as a mutilating spirit. He speaks about verse 18 that when this spirit seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes stiff and rigid. 
And so here is this spirit who will overpower this boy and just slam him to the ground, leaving his body battered and bruised and scarred. The term Luke uses in Luke 9, bruising him, is a term that means to completely break or to shatter to pieces. And so there's no telling how many concussions this young boy had because of this spirit. No telling how many broken bones and fragmented bones he had because this spirit would just throw him to the ground in these convulsing spasms. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he's described in verse 22 as a murdering spirit. He's not satisfied just in harming and mutilating the body of this boy. His desire is to destroy him. And it means to fully destroy him. His desire and intention is to take the life of this father's only son. And so he's often thrown him into the fire. He might burn to death. Thrown him into the waters that he might drown. As you look into the face of this stranger, There's no telling how many scars he possesses because of how many times he has saved his only son from the fire. And so he has come pleading and begging and imploring the apostles on the day before for help. And when they failed, Jesus comes the next day. And as this multitude is gathering, this father just rushes out, falls down at his feet, and he says, I pleaded with your disciples to help, but they could not. It's in this scene that he makes his great statement of faith. He says in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And in response, Jesus says, if you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. And then this great statement of faith from this heartbroken father and stranger and one of the crowd. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. If you're reading there in Mark 9, 24, notice that the statement of this father concerning his faith is a statement of exclamation. It's a statement that he exclaims. Mark says there that this father of this son cried out. It's a term that means to exclaim or to cry aloud. This is not a whisper. This is not a wishy-washy statement. This is a bold, loud declaration of faith. Lord, I believe. Notice there that this statement is full of emotion. He cried out, Mark says, with tears. Flowing from his eyes. He's one of at least three found at the feet of Jesus with tears. The other two are women. Luke chapter 7 verses 38 and 44. There is this sinful woman in the Pharisee's house. At the feet of Jesus washing his feet with her tears. And then there's Mary the sister of Lazarus who comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus. John eleven thirty three, 33 where Jesus saw her weeping. The tears of those women show that their hearts were full of emotion. The same with this stranger, this father. He comes pleading with Jesus with a heart full of emotion. This is an emotional exclamation of faith. Lord, 
I believe. I want to draw from this statement three things about our faith and the faith for which we should long. As we look at the statement of this father, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Number one is this, O for a faith resolved. This father had a faith that was resolved, certain, and confidence of its trust in Jesus. Listen to his statement, Lord, I believe. There is no hesitation there. There is no resistance to faith. There's no resistance to confessing his faith. It's a bold, loud exclamation of his trust and his confidence in Jesus. Lord, I believe. And oh, that we have faith that was so resolved and so confident of its trust in Jesus and in his ability. And I believe that's where most, if not many of us, are in our faith. We have a faith that is resolved, a faith that is certain of Jesus and His power, of Jesus and His ability. And here was a father who was willing to loudly and boldly exclaim his faith. Our faith in Jesus, our trust in Him is a faith that we are to exclaim boldly and loudly. Remember what Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. That with the mouth confession is made to salvation. That if we would confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, we are to hold fast to the confession of our faith without wavering. We're to boldly confess that we believe who Jesus is, the Son of God, and we believe in His power and His ability, a confession that we are to profess before many witnesses, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. We are to have within that exclamation an emotional component to our faith, just like this Father. Paul notes it there in Romans 10, that we should believe in our When Solomon wrote about faith in Proverbs 3 and verse 5, he noted this emotional component of faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And so this father, as he makes this statement, Lord, I believe. It's an emotional, heartfelt exclamation of what he has resolved in his heart. And oh, for a faith like the faith of this father. That we would be so resolved concerning Jesus that we would from our hearts boldly and loudly exclaim, Lord, I believe. Number two, oh, for a faith realizing. This father had a faith that was realizing something. He says, Lord, I believe, but Father, I realize my unbelief. He recognizes that his faith also has unbelief. That there are times where his faith is struggling. There are occasions when his faith needs to grow and to mature and to develop. As he's looking at his faith and considering it, he realizes it's not perfect faith. There are moments when that faith is lacking, that faith is stumbling, that faith is struggling. And when faith faces the difficulties of life, those difficulties just reveal where faith is weak and where it needs to grow and to develop. And so it was with the faith of this stranger, this one of the crowd. 
He came seeking Jesus, likely because he had faith that Jesus could help. And then when he came to the apostles and he petitions them, he's pleading with them, and they try and fail, he recognizes and realizes, my faith is struggling. Lord, I believe, but there's unbelief here. The difficulties of life reveal where faith needs improvement, where faith needs to grow. And while we boldly exclaim our confidence in Jesus, while we have a faith that is resolved, Lord, I believe if we're realistic, this is where our faith lives, isn't it? That there are moments when our faith is struggling. That we live in the midst of faith mixed with unbelief. That when the difficulties and the storms and the struggles of life come, sometimes it realizes that our faith is struggling that it needs to grow. Oh, for a faith like the faith of this father that's willing to honestly say, Lord, my unbelief, my faith needs development. My faith needs growth. Finally, number three, from this stranger's statement of faith, oh, for a faith Once this father realized the struggle of his faith, he reached out. Listen to his statement. Lord, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. When he realized his faith was struggling, he's reaching out to the one who can turn his unbelief into greater and deeper faith and deeper confidence. The same term help is found back in verse 22. This father, this stranger, had already cried out to the Lord for help concerning his son. If you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And now he cries out, verse 24, for help concerning his faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a term that means to aid. It means something like run to the help of the cry of those who are in danger. And so here's a father reaching out to the one who can help because his faith is struggling and he realizes it. And oh, for a faith like the faith of that father. Oh, for a faith that will turn and reach out to the one who can help. Notice Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. The Hebrews writer there is describing Jesus and he says he is able to aid those who are tempted. Who is Jesus? He's the able one. He is the one who has the power and the ability, the Hebrews writer says, to aid. Same term, translated help in our passage. Here's a father who says, Lord, help, and he's reaching out to the one who can help and aid, the one who has the power and the ability. And so what will Jesus do? As this father realizes the struggle of his faith and he reaches out to the one who will help, Jesus casts the demon out of his son, restores him whole and brings him back to his father. And so what Jesus did in helping this father's son, he also helped this father's faith and he left that place with a greater and deeper trust and confidence in the Lord because he realized his faith was struggling. And he reached out to the one who could help. Lord, give us 
such a faith as this. Lord, help us to have a faith that is so resolved that we would loudly and with a heart full of emotion boldly proclaim, Lord, I believe. But oh, for a faith that realizes in honesty when it's struggling, that's willing and to come before the throne of God and say, Lord, my unbelief. And oh, for a faith in those moments that's willing to reach out to the one who could help. Lord, help my unbelief. May the Lord help our faith to grow and our faith to increase. Looking into the face of a stranger, a heartbroken father, but his statement of faith, is one that resonates with us. Maybe it is that you're here this morning and you've never been obedient to the gospel of Christ. You are convinced that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then act on your faith and obey Him. Turn from sin and repentance. Confess your faith that He is the Christ before this offense. You might be immersed, baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Or Maybe it is that you're here this morning as a child of God and you recognize like this Father that today your faith is struggling, reach out to the Lord and let Him aid, assist, and strengthen your faith. Oh, for a faith that will not shrink. Lord, give us such a faith as this. And if you're in need of responding to the invitation, won't you come? Together we stand and as we sing.